Top Chat with Father Peter Walters. Father Peter, thank you so much for having given of your time, especially when you're in hot demand as you are today. Good afternoon to you, Ruth. It's uh, very nice to be with you. So, to give it a tiny little bit of a backdrop, I heard of Father Peter when I was on pilgrimage last year in Walsingham, and there's a little charity shop, and I was told this story about there had been this priest in Walsingham who'd ended up working with street children in Colombia. And I was very moved by the story and had no idea that I was going to have the great providential good fortune of meeting Father Peter last night. And I said, please, pretty please, is there any chance to have this chat before you disappear off to South Wales this evening? So we've literally caught him by the scruff of his neck, but thank you. So I don't know quite where to begin. Where do you normally begin? Where would you like to begin? Well, people often ask me, why did I get involved with Colombia? How did it happen? And the story really starts back in 1982 when I was a student and I was interested in South America and I saw a cut price deal on an airfare to Colombia and I thought, great, I'll go there. And I went over there on holiday and that was when things started to happen. Ooh, cliffhanger. Oh, yes. Tune in next week. And you'll hear the next episode. Because this isn't meant to be a monologue. You're meant to interrupt me, you see. Because it'll be frightfully boring for people to listen to if they just hear me talking. So, and then you you should say, and then what happened? Well, and since you asked me, and then what happened was that I got stuck over there because I had a problem with my ticket and I couldn't come back when I wanted to. I could only afford to eat once every two days. And one day when I wasn't eating, I bumped into a group of children who were begging in the street. And once they realised that I hadn't got any money when they asked me for money, and uh, that I was hungrier than they were, they decided to adopt me. And they shared their food with me and looked after me. They found it very funny to find a foreigner in that position because they'd never met a poor foreigner before. And their kindness, their humanity moved me enormously. And although in those days I wasn't a Catholic, I'd been brought up in the Church of England. I knew most people in Colombia were Catholic. So I went to see the local Catholic Archbishop to ask him to help my new friends. Hang on, hang on, hang on. This is a man without Spanish in those days. Very, very limited Spanish, yes. But when one is hungry, it's amazing how quickly one learns. And, And I had a Spanish phrase book. And I and sort of was sitting on the beach um, learning Spanish irregular verbs, desperately trying to communicate. So having made friends with street children, with your basic, but I'm sure very communicative Spanish, and being moved to the heart by their response to your need, how does that then get to you and to the Archbishop? I mean, that is a bit of a jump and a leap, even for a non-Catholic. I mean, how long did it take to get to the Archbishop? I mean, it, it, it was actually much easier to see him than I thought it was going to be. For me, the encounter with the children was actually a, a very spiritual thing because I felt that somehow through them, God was reaching out to look after me where I was thousands of miles away from home. I got myself into a silly mess. It was all my own fault. And yet, I wasn't alone. And yet, God was caring for me through these children. And it made me think, well, why wasn't anybody doing anything to help these children? And I thought, well, Colombia is a Catholic country. Surely the Catholic Church should be doing something to help them. And the logical person to speak to about that was the local archbishop. So I went to the cathedral to find out where he lived and went to his house. 
and he was keeping open house as he did every morning and there was a sort of a queue of people waiting outside his study so I took my turn and in I went and I managed to communicate with him to him in a combination of pidgin Spanish and a bit of French and a bit of Italian and a bit of Latin it was a sort of hodgepodge <laughs> but somehow we managed to communicate and we became friends and I ended up having several meetings with him uh, he was obviously sufficiently um, surprised uh, to meet a foreigner who was uh, concerned about the children to take me seriously and eventually he said well of course the Catholic Church is very committed to helping children like the ones you've got to know but perhaps God is trying to say to you through them that he wants you to do something to help them and that was really how it all started so how long were you in Colombia from the time of meeting the children to the time you got a flight of some sort back home again? Uh, less than three weeks, but it was a, an experience that really changed my life. It had a deep, deep impact on me. And when I came home, I wrote to the Archbishop offering to go back to Colombia to open some sort of centre for the children. And he then replied saying, yes, come, I'll try to sort out a suitable building. But then unfortunately he became ill and had to retire. And so the whole project was put on hold for two years. And then eventually he moved to a town called Manizales in the interior of Colombia and worked as a curate in a parish. And he invited me to go there. And so I went there for a few months and uh, lived in this clergy house. I was still then an Anglican, but obviously involved more and more and more with the Catholic Church. And I worked in a battery factory in the morning to earn some money to help children in the afternoon and the evenings. And uh, uh, one thing really led to another. And I, I went back to Colombia again and again and again. And it sort of reached the stage when I was sort of an Anglican in England and a Catholic in Colombia. And as the violence got worse in Colombia, more and more children whom I knew were killed. And I found it very difficult coming home to the safety of Britain, not knowing what was going to happen to the children while I was away. And I felt eventually that God was calling me to make a real commitment and that meant going out to live in Colombia and becoming a Catholic and becoming a Catholic priest in order to work developing an, an apostolate with the street children. So greatly daring, I went to the archbishop of the city with which I subsequently had become involved, a city called Medellin, to ask him, the archbishop there, if he would consider that as a proposition. And he went away and thought about it and then came back and said, yes, come. And so, so I did. So which year are we in now? We've jumped ahead because in the meantime I had been ordained as an Anglican. I had worked in a parish in South Wales. And then I'd been asked to go and work at the Anglican Shrine in Walsingham. And whilst I was working in Walsingham, I started the little charity Let the Children Live. And I signed the trust deed on the altar of the Holy House in the Anglican Shrine. So Let the Children Live was born at the feet of Our Lady of Walsingham. And she has been our patroness ever since. 
Um, the Anglicans sing a, a hymn which has a, a line in it that goes, the power of the work lies in Mary's own hands. And that has been our experience, that the power of our work in Let the Children Live has been entirely in, in Our Lady's own hands. And it is she who has been the great driving force behind the whole thing. So the deed, what, what year was that signed? That was signed in 1992, and I went out to live in Colombia at the beginning of 94. I was received in Colombia shortly after my arrival there, and I went to live in a house of studies, and was ordained deacon in June of 95, and priest in September of 95. So very quickly. Yeah. So now you're in Colombia with much better Spanish than you had had before. Was there a structure of support by this stage back here helping you or by leaving and going to Colombia? It was very much still just something that you felt committed to, but there wasn't a group of people behind you over well, here. Well, the charity existed, so I had a group of trustees and we had some donors by then. But when I went, uh, became a Catholic, of course... I had no income, I had no house, I had nothing. Uh, and so I, I went out to live in Colombia. It was a very much a, a venture of faith. And when I was first ordained, uh, the Salesians kindly rented me a flat, but I had no furniture, so I was sleeping on the floor. I had literally no furniture. I mean, not a table, not a desk, not a bed, nothing. And so <laughs> we started from that and, uh, uh, and then went on from there. And I started a charity in Colombia to spend some of the money that I was raising in Britain. And then we started working with children on our own accounts and, and gradually, with Our Lady's help, the charity grew. So you are based in Medellin City itself. That's where... You are? Yes. As far as the church is concerned, my boss is the Archbishop of Medellin. I'm incarnated. That means I belong to the local Archdiocese of Medellin in Colombia. So I'm just an ordinary diocesan priest. I'm not a religious. I'm not a, a Jesuit or a Benedictine or a Franciscan or anything. I'm just an ordinary diocesan priest. But I've been given the liberty to develop an apostolate for Children on the margins of society, our little charity considers itself to be an organisation of last resort. We're there to help the children whom nobody else is helping. And either passing them on to other organisations or to families that can help them, or if there's nobody else, then doing something about it ourselves. And you mentioned last night that at the moment there's about 400 children you're working with, is that correct? Yes, unfortunately our numbers have fallen a lot at our peak back in 2007. We were working with oh, between about 850 children. But when the recession started in 2007, the value of the pound collapsed and it hit us very, very hard and we had to cut back on staff, obviously, first of all, but then second, and much, much worse, on children. And that was a very, very painful and difficult process because all of the children were vulnerable, all of the children we were working with were very needy, and we had to prioritise those who were most vulnerable and most needy, and we cut our numbers by half. And we have never really recovered from that. We've sustained the work of the charity, 
and that itself has been a great act of providence really sustaining it uh, but we haven't been able to recover the numbers that we were working with before. Yeah, well, I always have to remind myself numbers are sort of secondary to the heart of the thing, really. But it was just, for me, 400 sounded like a lot of children to be working with. Do most of them come to find you, or how does it come about that particular children are with you? It's a mixture. Um, sometimes other children bring the children to us, uh, particularly in the street, because we are known. And sometimes children are referred to us by other organisations. But also I'm attached to a parish in a very poor part of the city and we sort of end up with, with more children often through contacts that I make in the parish. And quite often it, it, it's through the confessional that parents come and they are talking about various problems and then one realises that although the, the problem has a very important spiritual aspect, Frequently, it has a social work or a, a, a psychological aspect as well, which other professionals can help with. And it may be that the parent, for example, can say that he or she has been very short-tempered with, with the child. And then you start thinking, well, why is the child behaving in a way that is making you short-tempered? And then you start finding about the difficulties that the child has. And then we get involved that way. And so we say, well, perhaps there's something that we could do to help your child and then maybe that would mean that you would be able to be able to keep your temper better and so the parents go away and think about it and then they bring their child to to us um, so there are lots of different ways that that children get involved with us and if i've understood correctly the work that you do now it's not actually residential any longer it's um no. a sort of school of sorts but the really thrilling thing is this choir that I heard you mention about? We have different programmes. We work with children who live in the streets. We work with children who work in the street, doing any sort of money-making occupation from begging through to selling sweets and flowers to, sadly, prostitution. Um, and so that's another population. Then we're also working with children with special educational needs, who find it very difficult to manage at school because the primary school classes tend to be very big in the state schools, maybe 50 or 60 children, and the teachers have neither the time nor the specialist training to give individual support to the kids, and so they need extra support in order to be able to stay at school. And another population we're working with are young mums, teenage mothers, one of our girls, for example, became pregnant at the age of 11 last year. She had her baby when she was 12. And we're a very pro-life organisation, as you can imagine, with a name like Let the Children Live. But not only does that mean that we have to help the mum care for the baby whilst the baby is in the womb, but we have to help the mum care for the baby after the baby's been born. And so that means practical things like baby clothes and nappies and things, but also it means trying to help the girl stay at school because all too often the girls want to give up going to school and that means that they will never get any qualifications and that they are then doomed to be uh, reliant on some useless man for the rest of their lives. Whereas if they get some qualifications then they can be independent. So we try to help the girls with mutual support by staying in school. So that's another population. And then finally, we have this group that you've mentioned, the choir. 
And the idea of the choir is to provide a voice for all of the other children. So our children in the choir don't just sing for themselves, they sing for the unborn, the unloved, the hungry, the homeless, all sorts of children who are suffering. And the name of the choir is Cor Videns, which is Latin for seeing heart, because Pope Benedict, in his great encyclical Deus Caritas Est, God is Love, said that the program of the Christian, the program of the Good Samaritan, is a heart that sees where love is needed and acts accordingly. A heart that sees and acts. And that's the sort of heart that we hope that the people who hear our children sing will develop. So that's why the choir is called Corvidens. And we take it very seriously. We audition about a thousand children every year. And they come to us every school day after school because the schools operate on a shift system. And our children who belong to the choir go to school in the morning, come to us and have lunch, do their homework and have all their other school activities, and also do their singing and musical theory, learn to read music, um, piano, guitar and that sort of thing. And they learn to sing in Spanish and Latin and English. And they sing Latin American folk music, but they also sing Gregorian chant and classical music. They sing in four parts, so they sing Mozart and Palestrina and Victoria and Haydn and Handel. So quite an extensive repertoire. And we hope that eventually they will become something that is symbolic of the city. And that just as people who go to Vienna want to hear the Vienna Boys Choir, we hope that people, when they come on holiday to uh, Medellin, will want to hear the children of Corvidens. And that that will help to raise lots of money for our children. It's absolutely fabulous. I had a job working in classical music for the last three years, and what came up time and again with the various charitable organisations that were linked with classical music was how beneficial it is for education and that being involved in music helps one sort of across the board with mm. understanding other things so mm. not only is it fabulous in itself and I'm sure providing a lot of pride and joy but that it will be beneficial for their whole area of schoolwork as well yeah. but something that Father Peter mentioned last night he said is that they look like regular <laughs> English, regular English car boys, I mean with proper ruffles, the whole shebang. Once I pictured them all looking like that, these beautiful street children in ruffled cuffs, I can see why they are now in more and more demand at various sort of posh parties. Is it fair to call it posh party? Yes, I mean they sing for people who pay them to sing. Um, So they sing for events run by universities, graduations, that sort of thing, sometimes when there are conferences or when a big company is putting on a social event they will invite our children to come and sing or maybe for a wedding people will invite them to come and sing but also they obviously they are involved liturgically at no cost when sometimes religious communities have their saints day or whatever it may be oh it's joyous and they sang in uh, the cathedral for midnight mass a couple of years ago and so that was nice. So the, oh. our Archbishop invited them to do the Midnight Mass. And did you mention that some of them have got some sort of scholarship or doing well, some sort of link up? Because you are linked with the Ordinariate in... In Houston. Ma- in Houston. Um, the, well, 
first of all, we have someone from the Royal School of Church Music, Mr. Adrian Lucas, who comes over to Columbia every January to give our children a sort of master class for a week, which gives them a real boost for the rest of the year. And on his first visit, he was so impressed by our head chorister, as he then was, a boy called Sebastian, that he persuaded the Anglican Dean of Worcester to invite Sebastian to come and sing with them for six months in England. So he came over and sang with the choir of Worcester Cathedral and a whole number of other choirs. And then when he went back to Columbia, he went to university and he's now doing a degree in orchestral direction. Uh, so how old was he when he came over? He was 17. He had his 18th birthday over in, here in Britain. Did he enjoy it? Oh, very much so. And fortunately, he had learnt English before he came, but, but actually being here and being forced to use it all the time meant that he polished it really well. And so now he can speak really good English. And he is actually serving this year as our interim choir director in Colombia. So he's paying back some of the help that he received. And he's going to a, a conference in Peabody, near Boston next week to do with church music representing us and we hope making lots of contacts in the United States because we want the choir to develop contracts there because it's a lot handier than coming to Britain. And you mentioned the Ordinariate and in the United States their cathedral is the Cathedral of Our Lady of Walsingham in Houston. And I've had links with them for many years, and they have very kindly invited four of our choristers to go and sing for their carol service in December. So that will give them a, a tremendous boost if it comes off. And at the moment, we're trying to sort out the visas that they will need to go to the United States. So that will be a first experience for them singing abroad, and we hope eventually that the whole choir will be able to go on tour and eventually come to the UK. That's the goal. Oh, it really gets my heart singing, thinking of how a trip to Colombia as a student in 1982 has led to this remarkable journey of an Anglican clergyman without much Spanish, <laughs> <laughs> but with a great love for God and a desire to serve him. It's, it's really wondrous. Um, I don't know how long ago it was, but there's a beautiful painting that goes with the charity would you explain a little bit about it, because it'll oh, yes. go up next to the podcast. Let me show it to you again. Some years ago, I had a dream of Our Lady, and in my dream, I saw Our Lady against the background of the ruins of her medieval shrine in Walsingham here in England, reaching out to the Andes, to the city of Medellin, where I now live, and I described this dream to an artist who produced a picture and so on the one side of the picture you've got the arch of the ruins in Walsingham and on the other side you've got the Coulter Hare building in the centre of Medellin and Our Lady is reaching out to embrace and protect street children and these children are coming to the Christ child who is naked and they come with their old blanket to give him some protection from the cold and they're going to wrap him in the blanket and they're tying a friendship band on his wrist to show that he is their friend. And Our Lady is wearing a crown, but in her crown are set emeralds, because Colombia is the emerald capital of the world. 
So if anybody who's listening is wearing an emerald, the chances are that it came from Colombia. And this is just a sign of the wealth of Colombia, potentially. But the real wealth, the real treasure, of course, are its children. And the other thing in the picture is that the, the night is black and dark because there are all the problems. But there is the light of hope of the star of the new evangelization shining in the darkness to give comfort and light. And that was the sort of the image that I had in my dream and that I explained to the artists who painted this picture for us. And so we put this picture on our prayer cards. And uh, so I ask people uh, to say a little prayer that's on the back of the card when they see the picture. Could we perhaps end with you reading the prayer? Oh, and before we do, I'd just like to say thank you, Father Peter. (laughs) And I hope this is the beginning of a real long-term friendship. And I do hope that in some way I can do something concrete to help with all your work. Well, bless you. Thank you. We want our work to be better known. And if any of your listeners would like further details, then we have a website at www.letthechildrenlive.org. And we need help. We're a tiny organization. And we need prayers because the children need God's grace to break away from street life and to resist the temptation to go back to it. We need publicity to make our work better known, to try to invite us to parishes. We find it very difficult getting invitations to come to parishes because parish priests are inundated with requests from worthy causes. So it needs somebody inside the parish to speak up for us and try to persuade the parish priests to invite us to come. And, of course, we need money because the children need medical care and books and clothing and schooling and food and all sorts of other things. So we uh, find it increasingly difficult to support our work and we need all the help that we can get. So we would be very grateful for any help that people can give us. If I'm right, you are the the fundraiser and you fundraise by going around the parishes and talking and... As a result of this, you can only be at home in Colombia eight, nine months of the year. That's right. I'm on the road for the rest of the time. Oh, it's just exhausting in itself. And your trip to England this time is three weeks. Is that the norm, that you come over for three weekends? Three or four weekends at a time. It's about what my secretary can fill at a time. And I'm doing talks in the UK, but also now in the United States as well, because we've started Let the Children Live in the United States as a 5013C corporation. So if you're listening to this podcast from the States, then you can find out more about us over there as well. Uh, but otherwise, we're based in the United Kingdom. And of course, in Colombia, we are Fundación Vivan Los Niños, which is Let the Children Live Foundation in Spanish. Thank you. Thank you, Father Peter. Well, thank you very much, Ruth. Can we, shall we end with a little prayer? Yes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God our Father, guide and protect the street children of Colombia, and form in us a heart that sees, so that we may recognize in their dirty faces the features of your dear Son, who said that what we do for the least of his brothers and sisters, we do to him. At the intercession of Our Lady of Walsingham and St. Joseph, bless, we pray, the work of Let the Children Live, and all those whom the charity helps, that they might have life and have it to the full. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, 
for ever and ever. Amen. Our Lady of Walsingham, pray for us. St. Joseph, pray for us. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Totus Tours, for the most tip-top, top chat 24-7.